Hello, welcome to another edition of Start Your Week from the Bunker, tipping you off to the events of the seven days ahead. I'm Andrew Harrison, and here with me, bright and early, it feels even earlier than usual because the clocks went forward, it's Hannah Fern of the Eye and the Independent. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Do you feel half dead? Yes, yeah, but, you know, often my nights consist of about five hours sleep these days with two kids, so kind of used to this feeling. Just live with it. Nothing will get you going like a load of terrifying news. Um, For once, world stories seem bigger than UK ones. Uh, So we're going to do those first and then the domestic ones. First up, the astonishing scenes in Israel after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired his defence minister. Uh, Yoav Gallant had criticised Netanyahu's plans to put the justice system in the hands of the executive. Protesters are calling it a step towards religious-led authoritarianism. Tensions are very high. Police and soldiers use water cannon against demonstrators near Netanyahu's house in Jerusalem. Hannah, how, how serious is this? It seems very serious for a couple of reasons. First of all, the sheer numbers of people who are getting involved in the anti-government protests over this. So last night, overnight, tens of thousands of people took to the streets to defend Yoav Gallant, the uh, defence minister who was sacked. His wasn't even an extreme response to Netanyahu's proposals. It was a call for a pause to just stop and review Uh, what they're doing and slow it down. Um, And even for that, he has been sacked. And he is the first senior member of uh, Likud to speak out against these plans, although there's been widespread opposition, uh, as as you say, across the nation and across the world. And there are concerns that this does represent uh, a threat to democracy, but it seems a large proportion of the people feel the same way. And, you know, a huge number of people out on the streets. It's definitely deepened the divisions between the people and the government. And I think the other thing that's both concerning and interesting about it, is there does seem to be some genuinely sort of um, uh, accurate uh, analysis that shows that support from America's ultra-conservatives, the kind of ultra-right in the US, are lending huge support to Netanyahu's side on on this debate. Um, And it's becoming an ideological battle about the threat to democracy or the role of democracy or what I suppose democracy is uh, internationally. Um, Biden has has come out and stated that the values of democracy are a cornerstone of the union between those two nations. But that, to me, that seems like that's not enough. That's important words, but it almost understates the seriousness of, of what's going on. President Isaac Herzog has also called for the reforms to be halted. And the New York Times says that Israel is set for one of the most pivotal days in its domestic history. And Netanyahu is now said to be considering putting the moves on pause. This this does feel like it's been brewing for some years. Tablet magazine referred to the protests as the suckers revolt uh, in that the people who the secular Israelis who pay the taxes, do the military service, basically support society feel that they've been taken for granted for too long by the religious sector of society, which doesn't do military service, doesn't pay taxes, and so forth. I talk to friends in Israel, and they are seriously worried about the place becoming a, a near theocracy. And it's very, very difficult for you know from us here to kind of predict what might happen this week. But um, do you get the sense of what might happen this week? I mean, it's, no, as you say, very, very difficult to predict. And I think unless you're there among it, it's it's hard to really test the the, uh, the feelings, the sentiment on the streets. But it, it's the sheer number of people, I think, involved this time. You often see protests in Israel, um, but the, the numbers um, suggest that this is something different. And as you say, there's a large proportion of society that has feels that it's 
its views are now being completely overlooked, um, despite the fact that they are law-abiding, uh, engaged citizens of Israel, uh, and that actually um, what they believe Israel to be as a nation, its values, uh, what it uh, stands for in the world, is now under threat. And yeah, we, we won't that won't go away quietly. So yeah, a very important week and all eyes on on Israel. There were protests outside the Israeli ambassador's um, house in London as well. And I, I tend to read this stuff from friends who share it from um, is, Israeli liberal media. One of the mad stories is that there's now an increase in people uh, from the liberal end of society wanting to, to leave Israel. That, you know, it was always, you know, a, a, a population influx. And now people are so worried that they might uh, actually leave um, the Jewish state, which is remarkable. I guess we'll see what will happen um, later on in this week. We've also seen weeks and weeks of anti-government protests in France over the raising of the pension age from 62 to 64. But increasingly, it seems to be against Macron himself and his overbearing Jupiter attitude. Did you see the pictures at the weekend, the video? I did. I mean, the video was amazing. Oh, we, <laughs> was we're two, talking about yeah. the same video here, yes. We are, we are, definitely. Two people sitting down in a cafe to tuck into their glass of wine and goodness knows what... Um, you know, bread, cheese, and so on, while there's fires raging within about three metres behind them. It was fan- absolutely fantastic. Uh, it was real, real JG Ballard stuff. It's like, oh, the, the, the French really understand the art of living. Everything is on fire, but we're going to have a nice glass of wine. <laughs> well, for me, it was, it was a combination of that. Yeah, you know, every, everything's on fire, but let's carry on and pretend it's not. Or yes. you could just see it as... Well, this is France. You know, these two things are important to us, yes. <laughs> and we we'll, we can continue them alongside each other. It's fine. This is this is who we are. <laughs> yes, wine and rioting. And um, we've seen more than a million protesters on the streets. We've seen fire and destruction, piles of uncollected rubbish in Paris. Is it again? Is it possible to uh, predict what we might be seeing this week? No, I mean the interesting thing that about this, these protests is that they're perhaps less surprising, aren't they? So the French are well known for being uh, excellent at, um, you know, immediate street-led revolt against anything that they don't like. And what what they're really upset about is not actually the moving of the age, which although people are angry about that and they feel that it's unfair, but the way it's been handled by Macron, who has pushed it through. Uh, without requiring a full vote in the Assembly. And he did survive two no-confidence votes as a result of using that tactic, but it has really got the backs of the people up. And they feel, again, this is about you know how democracy is, is managed, how it's operated. And that's what they're out on the streets protesting about. So what's going to happen next? I think we are going to end up with a slowing down of the process to call time on, on the... On the um, on the protests that we're seeing, especially as the violence continues to be a part of those and begins to escalate. The interesting thing is, in 2019, pre-pandemic, uh, Macron had a another different attempt at pension reform, which failed because it led to the longest transport walkout that France has ever known. And it was only abandoned because we were going into the pandemic and you know other things became more important than this one particular piece of uh, legislative reform. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out, because in the past, he's attempted to um, face down the people with the, on their views on this and failed. Uh, so we'll, you know, what happens this time? It could be um, an indication of his political future. I mean, the, the strange thing is, though, he, he kind of does have quite a strong point. I, I was listening to the Slate Political Gabfest over the weekend, uh, which is a US political uh, podcast. And they were talking about how the average American is retired for about sort of 16 or 17 years. 
The average French person has retired for 25 years. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you if you sit listening to this from any country in uh, in the rest of the West, this sounds ludicrous that, that mm. there's this level of protest over two years up to 64, considering here in the UK, we're already moving to 68 and I'm 40 by the time I retire. It's very likely to be 70 and I just feel like I've swallowed that and I've, I've been comfortable with that for quite a long time now. But, you know, the French are much better at standing up for their workers' rights, aren't they? Let's be honest. Maybe I'm just uh, ingesting a healthy dose of um, British scepticism about our ability to fight anything we don't like here. I don't know. I think we would rise in favour of a retirement age of 64. I would certainly be. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But you're just but a couple more figures behind uh, the, the situation he faces. In 2000 in, in France, there were 2.1 active workers paying into the system for every retiree. By 2020, it had fallen to 1.7. And by 2070, it will be 1.2. It will almost be parity on workers and retired people. So, you know, it, it, something has to be done. Yes, it's going to very much unfairly affect manual and working class jobs because they start earlier they don't go to college yeah it's very hard to see what what's going to give here and you know on top of it the fact that macron's he's quite quite loathed in france at the moment is uh he has a 67 percent disapproval rating not quite as bad as the last pensions crisis but uh that you know his response is well i'm not standing again why why should i care i'll force this through yeah, and understandable because, as you say, something has to change and nearly every other nation has accepted that and faced it in some way. And it's unpalatable. In every country, there's, a, you know, an element that's unpalatable. In, in here in the UK, we've got the um, women who are a certain age in their 50s who missed out on a huge amount and that caused some controversy and, and, and there will be some people who lose out, but it has to be dealt with. So I guess he's in the best, worst position to do it, given that he doesn't care about standing again. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin has chosen the moment to lighten the mood by threatening to put nuclear weapons into Belarus. He claims that the US has been stationing nuclear weapons in other countries for decades. Uh, on Sunday, the NATO spokesperson, Oana Lungescu, said, We have not seen any changes in Russia's nuclear posture that would lead us to adjust our own, which I think that translates as common avocado, doesn't it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> does, it, does it indicate anything more than Putin's genius for keeping tensions high, keeping the West on the back foot? I think that is a big part of it because this isn't a new announcement. What seems to have changed is the the pace uh, towards that goal seems to have speeded up. Um, he's now saying that there's going to be, you know, uh, nuclear war st warhead storage built and operational by July. He's talking about commencing training of Belarusian pilots immediately to fly those craft that carry nuclear warheads. But if you look at what the experts in Washington and elsewhere in terms of intelligence are saying about that, they cast out over those timelines saying that if, you, if you're going to actually achieve those goals, that construction of those um, facilities would already be well underway and there's no evidence of that. So it does feel like it's about keeping up this sense of sort of risk and danger to the rest of the world because for Putin, the biggest risk is this becomes a sort of domestic issue rather than an international issue for him. He doesn't want to look inward um, because there's a lot of concern from inside his own country about what the value of carrying on this war in Ukraine is. In Ukraine itself, uh, Russia seems to be stalled at the, the town of Bakhmut, which is it's apparently a small town of limited value, but it's extremely symbolic. Dan Saba reports in The Guardian that temperatures in Ukraine are now unseasonably high at 17 degrees C, which means that, and I'm quoting here, the Russian campaign to knock out Ukraine's power grid has failed 
And whatever happens next in the war, its people will not be frozen out of their homes. Now, we kind of try to shy away from armchair military analysis here because neither you nor I, the, the person on the team who knows this stuff is Arthur Snell. We're just, you know, sitting here yeah. in London. But does it kind of indicate that we're possibly entering a new phase in the Ukraine war? Well, when the uh, new offensive on Bakhmut began about four weeks ago, um, this was basically described um, by those who do know a lot more about it than you and I as a potential pivotal point in the conflict, that whatever happened here um, could signal uh, the, the next chapter in, in the engagement. And Putin has suffered what um, is known as extreme attrition. Like To put that bluntly, that's a loss of a huge number of troops. Um, and this has been going on about four weeks now, no progress, and they're really bogged down. And it's, as I just mentioned, it's causing uh, issues internally in Russia as well, because large numbers of young men are being thrown at this conflict and lost. Ukrainian military leaders are planning a counterattack. And so if we're talking about what this portion of, or, you know, of, of the conflict means in terms of what's going to happen next and its, its pivotal importance, well, it's looking really positive for, for Ukraine's ability to hold on. So I think that's something that we should welcome, despite not knowing this in the level of detail that uh, others who contribute to this podcast would. And finally, on the international front, is Donald Trump finally going to get arrested over this Stormy Daniels payoff thing? He's been talking about it for days, practically begging for his perp walk. I mean, that would be great, but I think that no is the answer to that. I mean, one of the reasons is it's too inflammatory an act, isn't it? He's been mm. holding these rallies, the Waco one about a week ago was um, a sign, I suppose, that he is not a spent force. I wish we could all ignore him and that he would just go away, but it's clearly not happening. He has a huge um, following still uh, who will be, who he's bringing together in these um, these rallies and trying to uh, whip up uh, sentiment around him again, and yeah, if you if he was arrested, you have to think about what that would mean nationally. So I think that the answer to that question is no, but it doesn't mean that um, that this is just going to go away. He's he's there and he has a plan. God knows what it is. Uh, yeah, and it's it's troubling. I wish we could just forget him now. I wish he, he would he just disappear off off the world stage. Um, a la Boris, hopefully, soon. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we get rid of the two of them. But yeah, he's he's not going anywhere. And we do need to continue to keep uh, an eye on, on what's happening and, and, and any decisions around things like his arrest, I think, have that in, in the back of their mind. OK, let's have a look at the UK while it still is the UK. The winner of the SNP leadership election um, is going to be announced today, Monday. Uh, you may even know who it is by the time you hear this. Voting ran until uh, yesterday, Sunday at the weekend, so it's gone right to the wire. And again, we in London are always very careful of pronouncing on Scottish politics, of course. But uh, Hannah, who are you betting on? The, the Sturgeon candidate, Humza Yusuf, is the favourite so far. Yeah, I do think it will be Yusuf. But again, what do I know? You know, <laughs> we'll mm -hmm. see. But I do. it does feel like um, that sense of the continuity candidate is what... The majority of party members want, I think, um, but we we will see. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I often I come on here and I say I'm certain it will be something, and then we find it's the opposite. So maybe that's um, a nail in his coffin. <laughs> what has the campaign done to the SNP though? Because it, it really hasn't been pretty. It's been uh, it, it hasn't been organisationally pretty, and in terms of um, it showing the extent to which Sturgeon 
held the party together by force of yes. personality. Now she's not there, um, it's all hanging out. I mean, that's the key thing, isn't it? It's always been a coalition of completely different social values with one uniting political aim, which is independence. So now we're seeing it all hang out. And the people who are aligned under this one sort of pure goal of, of independence for Scotland completely disagree on almost every other aspect of uh, national policy. So uh, this matters most, I think, where it comes to issues around uh, climate justice, trans rights, um, other areas of equality, uh, and and that's where we're seeing the the cracks between the candidates and between factions of the party really show up in in this debate. So I guess what happens in terms of the leadership uh, today will signal what the party intends to be for at least the next chapter. And I think it also means that the party is going to be less about the single goal of independence now because it's been forced to talk about other things which while I think that Sturgeon was a, a phenomenal politician in holding it all together in the way she did um, what she managed that for you know decades essentially her influence as well you know she's been se senior in the party for much longer than she was first minister so I think you know it shows her her strength but um, it also means that the, the party has to come through to like a, a new chapter now and um, a new maturity I suppose post Sturgeon so it will be interesting to see what that means for them as a as a group. In shots across the bows news, the Scottish Greens say they're going to end their deal with the SNP if the new leader rejects progressive values that, such as the ones you just talked about. Uh, without the deal, the SNP is going to be one vote short of controlling Holyrood. And of the three contenders, only Yusuf says he will continue the deal. So that mm. could be it could be a very exciting week by this time next week. I, I'm not really surprised that he says he wants to continue the deal because he has presented himself at all times as the mm. Sturgeon continuity candidate. So fine, that's that's his position, that's his platform. But it's not surprising that the other candidates should say that when they um, come into leadership, if they are elected, that they would want to step back and make a decision about that relationship with the Greens. I mean, they ha only have eight MSPs, so it's not a huge, huge faction. But yes, it does. it would leave... Um, it would leave the SNP slightly short if they moved moved away actively from that relationship. However, I don't think renegotiating what that arrangement is is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it, it's a, it is, as I said, a new chapter. So I would expect to see any new leader want to renegotiate that in a way that uh, reflected the priorities for the next stage of, of Scottish politics. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of that relationship, just that it may be redrawn in a way that suits both. Meanwhile, in the small and inconsequential town of Westminster, uh, did you enjoy Matt Hancock and Quasi Quartin getting caught by led by donkeys at the weekend? They agreed to work for £10,000 a day to lobby for a South Korean firm that isn't real. 10k a day is a lot, isn't it? Um, would you like to hire me for 10k a day? I'd really like to do this podcast for £10,000 a day. Yeah, but <laughs> How do you feel about it's that? a fake Korean, straight fake South Korean podcast. They're the only one who could afford to do it. I thought this was <laughs> particularly tasty and particularly kind of just the, the cherry on a particularly disgusting cake. It is. The only thing is that stopped me getting really, really excited about it and laughing my head off was that these kind of things do pop up when you're in the kind of dying embers of a government. Um, I'm not sure it tells us as much about them as we would like to, apart from the figure, which does, mm. you know, illuminate somewhat. Because the reason is, this was a, a first meeting. 
And they weren't actually paid for this meeting. They didn't actually do any work. And I do, you do have to question whether after a bit of due process that nothing would have ever come of it anyway. And it's a, it's a great sting for the press. As a journalist, I do love these sort of stories because they really make you cackle. But I'm not sure it really tells us as much as we would like it to about them. It probably tells us more about how you know, lobbying operates and so on, and the ridiculous amount of money that they can claim for it. But it, but really, I don't think it tells us so much about them, sadly, although it is a great story. Well, there, there is a term in comedy writing, which uh, when you've told the joke, but then you keep throwing more jokes at it in an attempt to make it funnier, they call it bananas on bananas. Yeah. And the state of Matt Hancock and his absolute humiliation and probably the most ridiculous um, and... Uh, uh, you know, ludicrous politician in, in Britain at the moment. <laughs> Does this actually make it any worse for him? Can it get any worse? He's just awful, isn't he? <laughs> I just, yeah. I, I can't bear thinking about the fact that he led us through the darkest chapter in my living memory. That figure, such... <laughs> It's such an embarrassment. But, yeah, I mean, does it actually make it any worse for him? I don't think so. I almost think this is, like, the least bad thing he's done recently is, like, charge quite a lot of money for some consulting work that probably would never have happened because some due process would have worked out that it was either dodgy or, 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 or you know, legal or whatever that they were trying to hint at. So, uh, you know, it's not the gotcha that everyone thinks it is. Um, but it does say a lot that somebody of uh, his stature or lack of as we are now can charge ten thousand pounds a day for their services that tells us something about british society i have a suspicion that matt hancock is now some sort of unofficial psyop for rishi sunak just constantly <laughs> stepping yeah. on a yacht just feel of like that. yeah yeah um in real legislation is the Ru rwanda asylum legislation will definitely continue to be a big part of the week ahead the immigration bill is going to committee stage Labour is trying to force the government to publish a framework for a new deal with EU states uh, on uh, on asylum seeking and illegal immigration. But the big deal is that it's expected that about 60 Tories will rebel when it next comes to a vote because it's not tough enough. Uh, will anything ever satisfy these guys? It's unbelievable, that, isn't it? 60 to rebel because it's not tough enough. I've never seen anything so despicable and they they want they want more of the same abuse of others um but 60 mps due to to rebel makes me happy in a way because it means we're looking at a lengthened process more time for debate um more chance that this won't go through in its current form um and there's also opposition within uh, the conservative party on the other side as well it's not so significant a number but it's important to say there is opposition so um important week for that for that bill yeah then again, the last big rebellion turned out to be absolutely pathetic, didn't it, with uh, Mark Francois yeah. and the kind of sweepings That's from the true. Commons floor. Finally, in on the issues that really matter, the thing that the entire country is talking about, the government's going to ban nitrous oxide. Uh, Michael Gover <laughs> cited the piles of canisters in, in your local park and the attendant antisocial behaviour as the reason to get rid of the um, popular with the uh, 16 to 24 year olds, at least um, gas. Um, it is the second most commonly drug used drug among, among that age group. But that said, the advisory council on the misuse of drugs said making possession of crime will be disproportionate and it could create significant burdens for people who want to use nitrous oxide for legitimate reasons. Is this just a case of when in doubt, find some young people to bash 
Well, do you remember that in the last days of New Labour, there was a whole push on antisocial behaviour as well? There was obviously the ASBO mm-hmm. stuff, but this whole agenda of rights and responsibilities and the same thing about Jack Straw did a, a whole chunk on offenders doing community service, going around wearing high-vis jackets so they could be seen and spied on by all their neighbours. It's the same thing. It's like nobody remembers that we already tried all this and it's nonsense and it doesn't work and it's distracting. Um, so, yeah, it, it is it is panic. Um, but I think it's also really sad to think that we could be in a situation where we're going to pin a criminal record on teenagers having a bit of a laugh in the park. I'm not underplaying the fact that local antisocial behaviour can be really disruptive and it can be a problem. I'm not underplaying that. But slapping a criminal record on a child and allowing them to, you know, their whole early life to be affected by that and their chances and opportunities is grotesque. And I think, I hope that this doesn't get anywhere. Also, thinking about what, you know, what, going back to our, uh, my own childhood, this, it's just, nothing's changed. It's just the drug of choice has changed. When I was a teenager oh. in the 90s, everyone was doing poppers in the park and there was a great big discussion about that. This is just kids being kids. And what we need to do is find kids more things to do and not and stop, you know, underfunding local government so that the park and cheap drugs is all they've got. Um, but how many times have people said that and nothing changes? Yeah. Well, Hannah, on that uh, ecstatic note, thanks for joining <laughs> me for Start Your Week. Listeners, we hope you found it useful. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker. And if you want to help us on our mission to explain... Why not divert some of your laughing gas money into supporting us on Patreon? You'll get the shows early and you'll get a shout out on Start Your Week. And Hannah has a few of them now. Thanks so much to Catherine Chariches, Anna Pizzamiglio and Kevin Allsop. See you tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Phone. The producer was Kasia Tomaszewicz with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.